All right, hello and welcome to the second hour of Barbarian in the Valley by W on WMUA Amherst. Well, they said it was going to be cloudy. They said it was going to be stormy. They said there was going to be lightning, but we have chased it away here. We're in the crystal ship. We're floating above the valley. And we have seen the clouds, the dark clouds coming, and we have dispersed them. And so that weather you're enjoying out there, you're welcome. That's from us. Now, Waylon is, let's say he's on the run. He's on the run. He's not even in the country anymore. He's down in South America. So his orange van is somewhere in the valley. Now, I was thinking about this before the show. I thought, well, where would that orange van be? You know, under a tarp somewhere in the forest at his parents' house in Belchertown? But I realize now, no, it's at Logan Airport. It's in Boston or at Hartford. But I think probably Logan Airport. So if you're in the Boston area and you want to have some fun with this van, check out the parking center there at Logan Airport. Now, I am counting. I I made all these promises to Waylon, right? I said, you know, listen, I'm going to join social media. I'm going to just... I'm in your hands, okay? You're younger than me. I'm an old man. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Like, that's at the point of life that I'm at, right? This is my last shot at respectability. And so I said, you know, I'll do whatever you want. So he says, well, I said, tell me one thing I should do. And to my surprise, he said, join Facebook. Because I thought, really, Facebook? Because that just seems like... But apparently a lot of people use it. So what do I do? I join Facebook. I immediately set all my settings to private, right? Because I'm trying to sneak into Facebook, right? I'm actually, like, sneaking into the Facebook building, trying not to be seen. And then I start a group called Barbarian in the Valley. And immediately, they want a photo of me, which I send them. And then a day later, they say, your account has been deleted. Because I get it. It looks so suspicious, right? I mean, a person who wants all the privacy settings but wants to start a group, it's called Barbarian in the Valley. It just seems so Russian. And so I'm not on Facebook, okay? We're not on Facebook yet, but we're working on it. I said, Waylon, can you start the group for me? And he's like, sure. And I still don't think he knows what that means. Like, he's like, and I'm like, well, how am I going to get to the page? And he said, well, I'll give you my password. I said, you're going to give me your password? And he said, yeah, I don't know. And so I don't really want to have Wayland's Facebook password. Like, I don't want to know any of that. So we're going to have to figure out a way. We'll have to figure out a proxy. Now, just a reminder that if you want to call in this hour, this is a really important phone number. They said we're going to do just phone this week, 413-545-3691. And now I actually have Robin in the studio, so she's going to definitely want me to repeat that twice. Should I do two more? Two more. Okay, your mic's not on, by the way. That's like a big thing here. So I'm just like on the mic at the beginning. But okay, so 413-545-3691. Once more, that's 413-545-3691. And I'm gonna, we're going to, Robin and I are going to be speaking together about the subject of vows. So that's a pretty broad subject. I mean, we have some specific stuff in mind. But one thing that you could kind of consider is, before the show, we're trying to consider, well, what are all the vows in society? You have some pretty obvious vows. You know, when you are confirmed as a Catholic, I think that's kind of a vow. There are religious vows. There's marriage vows. There's unspoken vows, like being a parent. And, but we're also curious, like, what other vows you take. There's doctors take a vow, right? They take a vow. And so just anything on the subject of vows, we really would be happy to hear from you. So in a minute, we'll be back and just relax and listen to Dia Dato's Asos Barksara Thustra in the meantime.
All right, and we're coming back into the studio, into the crystal ship, that hovering orb, WMUA Amherst, and we have Robin with us right now. Robin, you want to say hello to the audience? Hello, everybody. Got a great radio voice, I think. Perfect for the radio. (laughs) Now, we talked a little bit, Greg White and I talked a little bit last week about New Mexico and where we were. Can you talk to us a little bit about the week that we spent out in New Mexico and what it was like for you? Because it's relevant to our conversation. Yeah. Well, um, you know, as you know, it's been my ninth summer doing this. And um, so it almost feels... I mean, they say this at solstice, it's coming home. And it feels like that a little bit. You know, you're... um, in this very extreme uh, environmental situation, 7,000 feet above sea level, the wind, as you know, is rip-roaring this time. I've been there where it's been deluge of rain, tents um, floating in, in the river. Fire. Fire, of course. Dust. Heat. And can we just, just for our listening audience, we'll step back and just say that this is a one-week, or a little bit more than one-week, event where people who practice kundalini and white tantric meditation and it's connected with Sikh dharma come together in this very open air space there's nothing resorty about it and practice yoga and meditation together and they've been doing so for 50 years this year was the 50th anniversary right so I'm just trying to set up the setting because it's it's quite uh, different than what you know you and I are normally used to and um, so that adds to the whole experience. And Yogi Bhajan, who is the, um, the leader, the teacher of this particular yoga style, uh, chose this spot deliberately for the reason to challenge his students. Yogi Bhajan's whole MO was really not about helping his students um, have peace, but instead to build resilience and to tolerate discomfort and to surrender to uh, discomfort, surrender to a higher power. Um, So you're challenged to do that at every turn, you know, from the food to the porta potties to the other people to the crowded yoga spaces to the Working with other people, doing jobs with other people. Yep. The whole camp, there was 2,500 people there this time. The whole camp runs uh, primarily off of uh, the jobs that you choose. And everyone has to figure out how to organize themselves and execute in a week's time. So it's quite an undertaking. And um, it's really fun. It's fun. And so when you come back from that, what do you feel like you're bringing back with you? Or what is, you know, uh, let's just stick with that. What are you bringing back with you? That's a really interesting question. It's almost as if now that it's my ninth time, there's not such a difference between there and my life now. I've over nine, ten years, I've been building my practice such that I try to achieve a level of excellence and consciousness and uh, discipline that Yogi Bhajan really encourages, you know. So before, you know, when I was just starting out, I was, uh, what I brought back was just this huge sense of what's, what, what I'm possible, what I'm capable of actually. I'm capable of enduring these extreme conditions. I'm capable of sitting through three days of this very challenging meditation. I'm capable of, 
um, watching my mind and learning from it. So it really does expand your capacity as a, as a person. I mean, I think you could say even more than capable that you really enjoy it as well, right? I like to be stretched. Yeah. That's, I like that feeling. I feel yeah. like everyone there does. I mean, it's yeah. challenging, but I feel like at the end of a one-hour meditation or a whole-day meditation, people feel a great amount of peace and euphoria even, mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. survived it. And if for me, I do enjoy the creature comforts. It's true. and But I'm much more aware of them after having been stretched for a week and and I know that now because mm-hmm. I've done it five or six times and so I know that that's waiting for me that all of this stretching is is really therapeutic mm-hmm. and of course you have your own practice you wake up really early in the morning and, and practice so I can see why it's it's less of a this is a separate part of my life now for me it still exists as a one week strange re- vacation <laughs> that has the effect of kind of calming <laughs> so me strange. down and you know, and I like that. I like that austerity. And I think that might be an interesting way to... I, I wonder... Which, no, so let's just talk a little bit about this. So we do this for a week, and then we come back to our lives. There are people who go, and there are people in this community who make a choice, and they take their vows, and they become essentially Sikhs. I mean, the pr- proper pronunciation is Sikh, but I, I, really, I really enjoy Sikh over sick so uh, I don't know if that's true yeah I've, I've asked around it's sick but maybe in America we're allowed to say seek it's just so. such a better I, word I'm pretty sure okay yeah. so they you know you can take in this community this is the Sikh Dharma community and it's connected with the Sikhs in India you know mm-hmm. to the Golden Temple it's part of that religion mm-hmm. you know it's definitely an American branch and there could be Indian Americans who are Sikhs like in a different branch, so to speak. This is Yogi Bhajan's branch of Sikhism, and it's approved by the Central Sikh community. And if you take your vows, you're going to be living like Sikhs live all over the world. Mm-hmm. And so that's called Amrit Sak, right? Mm-hmm. And taking your vows is Amrit Sak. And there's a bunch of things that come with that, right? You know, there's things that if you take these vows, then you're essentially agreeing to do a couple of things for sure. One of them, and this might be the hardest one in a way, at least here, is to not cut your hair and, right, and right. also cover your hair. And the reason for that is uh, the Sikhs believe that God gave you a body, a mind, <clears throat> and not to temp- tamper with it, to, to do that mm. the work of, of growing and evolving is to accept. So that's why... No cutting the hair. Now, the fingernails... I'm not sure about that. I mean, obviously, you can. Or there's... If there's also, by the way, I've... Because I knew Sikhs, Indian Sikhs, mm-hmm. when I was younger. And there's ways of kind of, like... There are, like, uh, workarounds a little bit. Like, twisting your beard a little bit is allowed. For example, it's not cutting, but it does have the effect of kind of slowing growth. And there are things that you can do, like with any theology, that make it perhaps a little bit more manageable. Yeah, and some Sikhs cut their beard, you know? I mean, it's not... It's right. not, it's, 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 you know, just like what you're saying, in any kind of dogma or tradition, there are people who commit to a greater or lesser yeah. extent to it, but who still very much identify as Sikh. Sure, although I would say the turban is... 
the covering of the hair feels like not that negotiable. Now, it may be. But to me, that's... And when we were flying over, I had a nice conversation with a guy who was Sikh and, and was born in New Jersey and became a Sikh in 1974. And he talked about how Yogi Bhajan talked about that the turban was a way of really forcing you to commit and that, you know, in our society, particularly, by the way, post-September 11th, right, because a turban is associated with jihadism, you know, unfairly, but whatever it is, that wearing a turban is, you know, it really forces you into relationship with... Well, it signals to the rest of the population, I am this, I belong to this sect, I belong to this tradition. And also, unfortunately, it signals all kinds of stuff that you can't control the message of. Of course. Right, like, not, most people, most Americans don't know what a Sikh is, like, they actually are I'm sure if you polled, most Americans would not know that religion. It's not that large. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's the fifth largest religion in the world, but it's, you know, dwarfed by Buddhism, Hinduism, and, and Christianity and Judaism. Mm-hmm. Not Judaism, because that's actually fairly small by the number population. Mm-hmm. If not, um, it's known better than by the numbers. Mm-hmm. There's, I'm sure Sikhism is bigger than Judaism, just by numbers. I'm almost sure of that. But the point is, is that not only are you identified as this, but you're also misidentified as a whole bunch of other things because you're wearing a turban. So that's, yeah. you know, it forces you to be, have a really conscious relationship with your community, which is good. And I actually said to him, I said, well, that's interesting. I said, that must be kind of unique to here because if you're in the Punjab and you're covered, everyone knows who you're Sikh. You know, it's, it's a, like a big, big a popular religion over there. Everyone knows what the aspects of Sikhism and Sikhs in India are very successful. Yeah, and I have to say that that turban-wearing deal is one of my personal big obstacles yeah, to uh, I would say stepping so. into the okay, tradition. Okay, so why? Tell us why. I understand from my own perspective, but tell us why. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. It's... It's first of all, it's unfamiliar, so it's not something I grew up with, you know. Um, it does so because of that. It sets me apart. It sets me separate from the tradition and the culture that I grew up in. Just like what you're saying, and and that's a conscious choice for those people that that take the vows. Yes, I am making a conscious choice to to distinguish myself as such. Um, and the other thing is it, it it's it's that distinction is really about being pious and holy um that's the point to where bana is just to sort of signal or to present as someone who is devoted to um to this holy spiritual path and I'm not sure I am devoted to that, but I think my version might be a little bit more, uh, I don't know, custom to my own preferences and style. And this is where we can start to get into, okay, so yeah, there's parts of me that I don't, my, parts of my ego, my identity, things that I like and, and, and want to be perceived as. I'm not really willing to let that go at this moment. Yeah. It doesn't feel... Although you use the word pious, and I don't necessarily associate it with that, you know, a kind of piousness. Because, obviously, 
Well, not obviously, but to me, pious is, has a negative connotation, right? right? Like, I don't, I'm not really down with pious people. And we know that from solstice that there are some Sikhs who probably do have a pious quality, but there's so many who don't. And, mm-hmm. and it's really refreshing when you have someone who's made that commitment and is so relatable. Mm, and, and sometimes, like, more relatable than other people I've ever met. And I think, again, the turban forces people... I think this guy I talked with on the plane would say, well, the turban has forced me to be relatable, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, because mm-hmm. I don't really have the choice because I can either be segmented off mm-hmm. and stuck in isolation or I can really be... And I think, like, for someone like me, that would be really healthy because, yeah. for example, I'm very relatable if I know you, if you're in my circle of friends. If, I'm in, if you're in my classroom, I become very relatable. Outside of that... I'm not that relatable. I'm not that friendly. I wonder if the turban would force me to, it would kind of force me. Now, could you, it could also just chase me back into my cave, right? Yeah, but knowing you like I do, I actually think it might be an interesting experiment. You know, there, there's a teacher that I met that did, um, that wore her turban all the time as a meditation, as an experiment. Yeah. You know? And, um, she did it for 90 days and then it really did feel like her commitment to the practice and to this to the teachings deepened just by doing that well, by wearing I the it. by wearing the turban so i'm just curious you, you know you want me to wear a turban well now i'm thinking maybe i don't know maybe. if my department can handle that <laughs> <laughs> hey you, you know if, if we're talking it's you know it'd be an interesting experiment it would be an interesting experiment even for a day even and and a, a good experiment. I, in my Middle Eastern class, I think this year I'm going to try to get some burkas and oh, yeah. shandors oh, and stuff like that idea. and totally. have the students wear them, at least put them on oh, yeah. just to have that experience of veiling. Totally. Physical experience of, of being veiled. You know, because that's just a different thing. Now, even in when we're doing white tantric meditation in New Mexico, we have to have our head covered really all day. Yep. And it is remarkable that when you take that off, there is a, sens- a sensation of release and freedom that your hair is now. In which I think if you're Sikh, of course, you can take your turban off at home. Right? You do. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. And so there's do. this. You wash your hair. Sure, of course. And haven't so, you seen the English patient where. It's been a while. He does that, all that ritual with his oil really? hair. That's oh, in the English patient? It's one of the most sensual scenes of the whole movie. Oof. Okay, I'll get it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's. There's, and that's the thing about commitment is that the, the secret about commitment, of course, and, and deprivation is, is that actually. You know, your body responds so much to when your hair is released that it's it can be really feel really good. That everything kind of balances out in your body, and and it's true with the other way. You can go drinking one night, have fun, and then be ruined the next day. Your body is always seeking a kind of pleasure pain threshold, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. when you are sitting in meditation for nine hours, yeah, it's really painful, and then it's really great when you're not in it. <laughs> and uh, you know, they've done studies on happiness. And the happiest people in the world are Buddhist monks. I mean, by some scientific metric where they're actually can read your brain waves. Have you talked to the audience about Epicureanism yet? Yeah, no, that's, let's just take a, that's a cool, I have not talked to them about it. And so let's just briefly talk about it. Epicurean, if you call someone an Epicurean these days, it's perceived as someone who loves luxury. Loves good wine, loves good food, good furniture and stuff like that. The actual Epicureans were the pretty much the exact opposite of the modern day definition in so much what they both would agree on is that the point of life is not to feel pain. 
a modern Epicurean seeks pleasure. Uh, ancient Greek Epicurean seeks austerity. What they were always trying to do is, I'm going to like basically find the most basic way of living so that even in a time of crisis or a time where nothing can really be taken away from me. So I'm going to learn how to sleep on the floor. You know, they slept on the floor. They didn't have pillows. I'm going to learn how to make that comfortable because I know there's always going to be a floor underneath me. Right. I'm always going to have That's gravity. Gonna gravity is not going to be taken away from me. So <laughs> I'm good with gravity. And, and <laughs> also with like what they only, you know, they only had like the most basic kind of food. So they, I don't think, had some elaborate theology above it. They were really in some ways very, um, like the Greek and the Romans could often be very, focused on utilitarian concerns. Like, mm-hmm. how do I actually achieve this physically? Stoics mm-hmm. too. The Stoics didn't really have gods particularly, and they had a very similar mindset, which is I can only self-regulate. It's really about self-regulation. Right. And so I do think there's a connection there. And I think that anyone who is, you know, whether you're doing Catholic Mass, because Catholic Mass is, can be physically arduous, actually. You're going mm-hmm. on your knees. You're getting back up. You're going on your knees. Uh, Judaism, uh, Buddhism, there's Buddhists who crawl to Tibet. Mm-hmm. You know, they crawl on their hands and knees to mm-hmm. Tibet over hundreds or even thousands of miles. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of this is, you know, the body will always reward you when you de- deprive it, too. Like, that's just our homeostatic nature. Mm. And so the turban, I can see how the turban could be a physical confinement and also a physical release, mm-hmm. I guess is the way I'm putting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and covering yourself is very interesting, like even beyond the turban, you know, because there are some religions that really want you to cover your arms, cover your legs. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder what the actual experience is. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have, I think in our culture, this negative, I feel like there's a slightly um, askew glance at all that, but I'm just not convinced. I just don't know what, what yeah. the experience is. Yeah, we've talked about this before, where there's a protective quality about being covered that that allows people to feel actually a sense of freedom, you know, right. um, that, and I think it's good to say that nothing is just one thing. So for example, when I take off my turban, I feel quite exposed that mm-hmm. I really enjoy the sensation of keeping all my mental activity kind of wrapped tightly yeah. under, under the, the fabric. And, um, I don't crave to take it off at all, really, you know, well, and some people will do that They'll wear a bandana around their neck, a head, just to do that, to contain themselves. Mm-hmm. David Foster Wallace, the writer, mm-hmm. that's why he wore the bandana, is hmm. because he really was so uncomfortable without it. Hmm. He that's felt like that was the only thing that could contain his head. Mm-hmm. So there's something to be said for that, too. <laughs> right. Um, keep going, though, if you want. I, I, I had something else that I wanted to bring in, but... No, go ahead. Yeah. So the turban is a big... Oh, I'm sorry. Apologies. I just wanted to say that at solstice, when your hair is covered, it has an interesting effect. I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about everybody. Yeah. It's very hard to identify, for me to identify people without seeing their hair. Mm-hmm. Like, very hard. Mm-hmm. And there is this sense when you're walking around during solstice that, like, wait, is that that person? I don't totally recognize them. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this is safe to say, but I'm just going to say it, is... My sense of attraction to women is much reduced when their hair is covered. Yep. Like, it's really noticeable. Like, it, that just kind of comes off the table. Yeah, And I wouldn't think that, you know, that hair would be such a factor in that. But oh, yeah. I mean, that's why the Orthodox Jews re- yeah. re- um, require that, that women shave their head. Because hair is 
over the, uh, I mean, from the millennium, has been uh, perceived as a sexual symbol. Right, inciting. and that's true. And I think yeah. most most heavily religious communities have head coverings of yeah. some kind. So, you know, that's just an interesting note that totally. like, it, uh, it has that experience. So the turban is a big stumbling block for us. Let me ask you if the turban, if it was the turban wasn't a player, but the, you still had to not cut your hair. And the other things, now we haven't really talked about this, but you can't drink alcohol, <coughs> you can't eat meat, probably not supposed to have coffee, but I think that's a flexible one. No, coffee is fine. Yeah. It's really alcohol and meat. And meat. <coughs> I mean, me. if I took the turban out of the picture, would you would you be much more likely to take your vows to Amritsar? No, I'd, I'd, trade, I'd trade the chur- turban for alcohol. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I'd, I'd much prefer to wear the turban than, and this this comes back to, and I've been thinking a lot about this since we decided to talk about this. Um, again, it 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 seems like a really big jump for me to 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 lead what I consider not drinking alcohol, not eating meat, wearing a turban. Really, to me, is a commitment towards purity, I guess, or slash piousness you know, austerity. And all of these things are um, really antithetical to what I was brought up with. And I don't think I'm totally unique. I'm, a, I'm just a regular American, but sort of my family ethos really celebrated excess in sort of a lot of ways that they didn't really <clears throat> encourage uh, contraction or limitations. It was sort of like, be all that you can be, you know. You can do anything, climb the mountain, just this real gusto, you know? And uh, with that, there's a lot of partying in my family, lots of partying, lots of sort of grabbing after what you want. Like, that's a value set that we have. And so, to, so for me, it feels like a really big leap to mm-hmm. say, like, you know... I don't know how much... I, I think I still, in order for me to be... To maintain my own homeostasis, I really need to have a high quotient of fun. Like, a lot of fun. Right. I guess you could just argue that, like... You know, alcohol is not the best actual means by which to achieve that. Like, and if you were forced into a vow, you would really start uh, developing other ways of having fun. I mean, that's one argument against it. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, drinking socially is tied to all these other social activities, you yeah. know. And, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. and No, I get it, too. I mean, I understand it. I, it's interesting now that you're talking about it. I think I'm probably, you know, when you first went out to Solstice I was, and you started talking about you came back and you're like, well, I, you know, I don't think I would take vows. I was like, what? What's going on? You know, like, are you take, about to take vows in this thing? Because we're, we're engaged to be married. And I don't know what that's going to mean for me or anything like that. But I think actually, constitutionally, I'm more likely to take the vows first than you. Just by I think the, you are. I think, because I really like those limitations. And the way I've been thinking about it is if I actually took those vows and did that and those things were off the table... You know, uh, drinking, and I just want to point out here, just because I'm a teacher in the in the valley and etc. I don't drink to excess. I enjoy drinking, and nor do you. I just don't want it to sound like we're some booze hounds here, but we enjoy it uh, recreationally. 
But I actually think my life could be extended by two or three years, actually. Well, they say that. Uh, I believe that. Yeah. And so now you're like, wait a second, why wouldn't I not do that? And not just my healthy, not just my life by two or three years, but probably my healthy life mm. by more, actually. And so then you're like, wait a second, why am I not doing this? Hmm. You know? So it's just, it's just uh, something to consider. Now, we're going to take a, a quick break here. We're going to play some music in line with what we're talking about. And we'll be back in a couple of minutes. I just want to remind you, 413-545-3691 if you want to call in. 